Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always, I'm very pleased to say, is Duncan Castles, the man who breaks the big stories and brings them to you on the Transfer Window podcast. Of course, on that theme, uh, it means that we talk about some of the biggest clubs in the world and of course the stories surrounding them. And today we will be discussing Manchester United, Manchester City, Barcelona and Real Madrid. And I'm sure you recognise it doesn't come much bigger than that. Duncan, we're going to start with Manchester United. And a subject which has been not uh, talked about very much. Since we announced that Executive Vice Chairman Ed Woodward is stepping down at the end of this year, not a lot has been written, said or indeed revealed about who might and the nature of his replacements. However, here at the Transfer Window podcast, we have information regarding the profile of the person that Manchester United are looking to appoint, and of course, the Glazers being in charge of that. And it may well be a surprise in terms of the kind of person that they are thinking of. Woodward, of course, has been a fairly uh, under-the-radar figure during his time at Manchester United, staying out of the limelight and ensuring that uh, the flack he takes, he takes basically in private rather than defending himself in public. Uh, Duncan, um, we understand that United are looking for someone who might be more high-profile than Woodward uh, in terms of being the public face of the club. Therefore, someone whose head will be above the parapet, someone who will be able to uh, relate to Manchester United fans and also to the football community in a more general way. That being the case, is not necessarily going to be someone who has the business now to perform the job of a CEO. Um, However, obviously United are well stocked with people in each of their departments uh, of importance with regards to generation of uh, income and uh, their turnover, who can take uh, obviously those roles uh, on board anyway. So perhaps not a leader in terms of business, but a leader in terms of being someone who will be the figurehead of the club. Now. I'm not sure that's a great move for a club and also for a business as big as Manchester United. Um, Would you say that they're going down the wrong line if indeed that's the case? I think the interesting side of this is that um, the the guidance we have is is very much about the Glazers retaining control. the feeling in the football community when Edward Ward's resignation was announced was the most likely replacement would be an internal appointment. Uh, Richard Arnold, the group managing director, being the, the leading candidate there. Alternative names that have been mentioned are Matt Judge 
and Heman Sayeo, who's the head of corporate finance, um, all of whom have worked for the Glazers for a long time. And um, it's been a, a mark of the Glazers' leadership or control of Manchester United that they stick with people who um, have been involved in their takeover, have been involved in the club who they worked with day to day, don't like bringing um, new individuals in. Um, and the feeling with this one is that this is a proposal which would allow essentially the status quo to continue, minus Ed Woodward. Um, so the Glazers operating, keeping a hand on everything, using their people on the ground in London and Manchester um, to deal uh, with football matters face-to-face, um, but having ultimate approval over everything that, that happens. And they go into extreme fine detail in, in matters of spend, not just on, on players, but on equipment for training ground. Um, decisions over or various matters are, are closely monitored. Um, so Arnold would then be the effective, in, in many ways, a de facto chief executive. But you bring in a front man who speaks to the press, um, who is the face of the club, who communicates more often than, than Woodward has been doing. Woodward did quite a lot of press in his initial years at the club, um, talking on record and then moved more into a, an individual who'd brief occasionally off record subsequent to that. But this, this sort of front appointment chief executive would be someone who would speak more regularly, in a sense, take the flack away from the Glazers, be be the, the corporate face of the club, um, but allow business to continue as is, allow the, the, the Manchester United model, um, the you know, intense focus on commercial revenues, um, huge focus on developing their digital uh, footprint. If you look at their, their latest accounts, they talk about uh, proudly about how they've expanded their number of social interactions and social followers by large percentages over the, the last year, pushing into Asia, um, pushing into areas where they see they can increase the market for the point in time where they manage to um, access direct sales of, of broadcasts of football matches to their um, customer base. Another thing that they, they talk um, proudly about in their, their latest financial statement is, is how efficient and large their, um, their customer, customer relationship management tools are. So in that context, I think if you are being headhunted for this role, um, I think it would be important to be aware of what the, the role actually entails. And, and it might not be what it looks like on the tin, which is a new chief executive to radically change the direction of the club but rather a, almost a, a spokesman for the club, a, a person to be um, in front of the camera in front, on, the, on the club websites, um, in meetings with UEFA, Premier League, etc. But ultimate authority very much resting with, with the Glazer family. It's kind of split in terms of um, the perception of what a chief executive of a football club should be. Um, some clubs do go down the line of employing a business uh, brain, uh, someone who can effectively uh, delegate and uh, generate um, ideas and 
the uh, progress of the club with regards to their um, money uh, turnover and how they move forward uh, in the business uh, community and progress. But it's also the case that some clubs have chief executives who you are very, very visible publicly and are spokespersons for the club. Um, and therefore, they, they are held accountable on the basis that um, they're the ones who are seen as uh, the top guy in the job. I would think that Manchester United would probably need someone in that way, someone who that Wood, uh, Woodward has not been in the last three to four years. Uh, and of course, the Glazers uh, and Woodward himself have taken a lot of flack from the fans. So I do think that maybe uh, appointing a, a, effectively what would be a human shield uh, for Avro, Avram and Joe Glazer um, seems to me to be uh, probably the uh, optimum uh, opportunity for the Glazer family to uh, yet again um, effectively shove the blame onto someone else. Well, we don't have to say it's been a difficult time for the, the Glazers over the last year. You've had um, top-level Premier League games cancelled because of supporter protest. Um, you have massive um, attack on the Glazer family and others who were involved in the Super League process. In fact, the, the Glazers have uh, undertaken to pay the uh, the. the the punishments to the Premier League and to um, UEFA that were required in, in order to apologise for that um, Super League creation attempt that they were intimately involved in. Um, at the moment, there is a, a feel-good factor about the club because Cristiano Ronaldo's come back. They signed Jadon Sancho, they signed Rafael Varane, so the, the transfer market is seen as a very successful one. They're in um, the right area of the Premier League at present, albeit they're yet to to play any of their uh, their major competitors for the title, and won't do that until next month. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, it's fairly clear that the, the part of that transfer market policy has been motivated by a need to a, appease the fans. And we, we've seen one of the Glazer family spending a lot of time talking to supporters, which is something that has never happened. Um, since the, the, the first interview that was given after um, they took control of the club. So there is certainly a sense amongst the Glazers that they need to um, get the supporters back on side and this would be a strategic way of doing that. If you were to go, for example, for someone like Edwin van der Sar, um, who has a lot of experience in, in exactly this kind of role, um, probably not so much as a front man, but a front man and a, and a proper executive in, in changing the, the operations at Ajax, then there's a there's a candidate there and someone who I'm told would be interested in, in coming back to Manchester United in that type of position. He's been proposed as a director of football in the past and has stated publicly that he, he would prefer to be in an executive position um, if he went back to English football. Um, but you know, there's someone who would have a, a you know a depth of affection from the Manchester United fans and would be listened to 
uh, and would be um, or could be an effective human shield um, for the glazers if they decide to go down this route. But remember, if they decide to go down this route, they are shifting away from a structure they've followed um, through their time at the club, which is sticking to people they know, um, sticking to the Edward Woods and the, and the Richard, Richard Arnolds of this world who were involved in the in the takeover. So um, it, it's the, there's a balancing act involved in, in this strategy that's been proposed as one way of solving the, the chief executive problem. I think in the last few days, Duncan, United have released financial figures, which uh, on the face of it, if you're not someone who um, analyzes uh, these particular aspects of a business, uh, are made to look relatively positive in a time when football generally has obviously suffered uh, mainly from the effects of the COVID pandemic. But uh, you've looked further into that and more deeply and have discovered that, in fact, the figures uh, that were published are not necessarily as positive as Manchester United would have their fans believe. I think in a general context, they are. It shows the strength of Manchester United, and we've seen that strength in their ability to operate in the transfer market to do those, to make those deals, to get Jaden Sancho, to get Varane, to get Cristiano Ronaldo back at the club. Relative to their major competitors for these type of players, they are in a strong position because of their commercial revenues and, and the financial report talks about that and they boast about the fact that their their strategy of focusing on commercial revenues has left them in a position where um, they see themselves uh, moving to the, the, the front of, uh, of European football again and they talk about how their, their squad building um, is a constant process but we're more confident than ever that we're on the, the right track it's one of, one of the messages in there they have relative to a lot of the major clubs kept losses down and and therefore have been able to to spend in the the market um but there's also some i think some quite clever little slight accounting sleight of hands um that have been involved in keeping uh losses underneath 100 million uh, pounds, for example, so the, the operating loss they declared was thirty six point nine million, a net loss of ninety two point two million. Um, that was caused by some, you know, very uh, complex sort of adjustments they made because of differences in tax rates in in the UK, changes to tax rates in the UK and the US. But the, the loss would have been over a hundred million had they followed the normal process of paying a fourth quarter dividend um, in. The, the fourth quarter of their accounts. In that 2020-21 set of accounts, they um, have just one dividend payment. Um, so normally they're, they're spending twenty around £23 million a year. It varies because it's uh, the dividends paid in dollars to the standard payment has been two sets of $0.09 cent payments um, split into two quarters. This time they made those payments or they announced those payments, but the, the last of the payment is thrown into the next financial year. So doesn't come on the, the current accounts and that knocks um, you know, roughly 10 to 12 million pounds off 
the bottom line. They they also benefited, and you know this isn't accountancy sleight of hand, but it, it's some it's relevant that um, they benefited from deferred VAT payments. Um, so which added roughly another ten million to the bottom line, um, as other businesses have done. Um, and they've also changed the way in which they structure transfer fees um, in that they, they've pushed a lot more of fees into contingent payments, i.e. Uh, payments dependent on performance of the team or um, performance of the player or whether the player signs another contract for the club. And that, that went up from 79 million to 92 million. Um, over the year, and that those contingent payments, they're they're quite careful about not putting them onto the accounts um, and adding them as a as a debit to their their finances until they are either very close to being paid or have been paid. So again, it's a slightly misleading um, sense of where they are financially in the accounts. But you know this, but there is an art to creating. Uh, financial statements and uh, Manchester United obviously pay for expensive accountants like other companies in their in their position. Other football clubs do, and uh, and they they try and uh, burnish the figures um, so that they look as good as possible. One one element I think that is worth noting is that they there's a, a cost of player registrations of the squad they have, um, which Manchester United detail as being 861.2 million. So that was the cost of all the player registrations in the squad before Sancho, Varane and Ronaldo's uh, payments uh, were added in. And, it, and of course, it excludes those contingent payments I've, I've been talking about. They say that um, Ronaldo, those three deals will cost them another £141 million. Um, so what you have there is a, a billion euro squad. Um, uh, this is only the second club uh, in the history of the game to put together a billion euro squad. Um, and of course, only two managers have ever been entrusted with a, with a billion euro squad. And you have Pep Guardiola as one of them, um, guy who's won 23 major trophies. And then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, someone who last won silverware in 2013, uh, the Norwegian Football Cup. Well, of course, those uh, transfer fees will be included in next year's accounts. So um, I think we can expect things to change significantly. And yeah, and uh, I forgot to mention we, they, uh, we can expect a big increase in the wage bill. Uh, the wage bill went up 13.6% in the, the reporting period. They say that they expect the wage bill to go up by another 20% on top of that um, on the back of those current transfers. Um, those three transfers they added after the reporting day. Duncan, one club who have been very quiet in recent transfer windows, amazingly, is Real Madrid. Uh, as you have said, and we have discussed, they are saving their money, like putting it in a Kylian Mbappe piggy bank um, <laughs> in order to try and acquire the PSG and France striker uh, when they can, obviously he's out of contract in about nine, well, eight months' time, I suppose. But they're also looking for centre-half, and you have information regarding a Premier League centre-half, who indeed they have a very big interest in. Yeah, 
as you say, Madrid have been saving money, um, not just for Kylian Mbappe, but a general rebuild. They've been reducing the wage bill, um, letting uh, senior players on big salaries like Sergio Ramos and Rafael Varane leave either under freedom of contract or for transfer fees, which seem low for their uh, credentials in the game. But there's, there's a plan there and um, the strategic build uh, in process. And one of the things Florentino Perez is is looking at, now he believes he has um, Kylian Mbappe um, effectively under control, um, assuming Mbappe goes through what, with, with what he's been telling Real Madrid the whole time that he wants to play for them and, and has it without transfer fee. Um, also, um, very advanced on Erling Haaland. One of the areas is centre-backs. They know they, they need to upgrade there. At present, the, their cadre of centre-backs are David Alaba, signed on a, on a very big um, salary from Bayern Munich, but no transfer fee. Eder Militao Nacho Fernandez, who has been used at left-back the last few games because of injuries um, that Madrid have had. And Jesus Vallejo, who I don't think many people think is seriously off uh, Madrid quality. Um, there are a number of options for them that they're considering um, as um, replacements. One, there's a group within the camp who like Antonio Rudiger and there have been conversations with him in the past, but as you um, detailed on the last podcast, Rudiger is uh, in the process of, of discussing a, a new contract with Chelsea and there, there's, there seems to be confidence on Chelsea's part that they can get the player to stay. And as you reported, Rudiger's preference does seem to be to remain in the Premier League if he can get the right money from Chelsea. Um, we told you previously that um, there are people at Madrid who like Jules Koundé, um, but they decided not to get involved in that in the summer uh, while they were working on Mbappe. Uh, and Koundé obviously remains available because Sevilla um, jacked the price up on Chelsea at the last minute and Chelsea refused to pay it. But there's also on that, that list of potential candidates for Madrid is Chagler Soyuncu, the Leicester City centre-back, um, who they feel they could pair well with David Alaba, were, were he to uh, come into the club. Um, also in a, one of those kind of vulnerable situations from the point of view of his employers, um, Leicester signed him in 2018 from Freiburg. They have had a few attempts at trying to get him to extend his contract, which isn't surprising given the the way he's played and the way he, um, I think generally you can see he improved um, Leicester City's defence after they sold Harry Maguire, supposedly the, the best centre-back in the world if you go by his, his transfer fee. Um, certainly a lot quicker than Maguire, um, uh, uh, potentially a, a more rounded um, defender. Um, so Soyuncu has two years left. Madrid like him and have him on that list um, as a potential recruit. So I think Leicester City have a something of a, of a challenge on their hands in terms of if they're going to keep Soyuncu there. And at 25, you would want to keep him. You could have you know at least another five years of him as a, a starting centre-back in the Premier League. Um, that they will need to improve his, his contract and get him on a, a longer deal. Otherwise, they're going to be vulnerable to uh, a more affluent club picking him off in the summer. 
be a big loss for Leicester City, that's for sure. Um, he's been a mainstay in the centre of their defence, and uh, I'm sure Brendan Rodgers will do everything he can to try and keep him. Uh, however, obviously the lure of playing for Madrid would be something that simply Leicester can't compete with. So um, it would not be surprising if he was tempted and uh, and left the Premier League to go to the Spanish capital. Speaking of Spain, Duncan, uh, Ronald Koeman has given a very bizarre press conference uh, in the last few hours where he refused to answer questions from the media and instead chose to read out a statement instead um, after Barcelona's very, very underwhelming start to the La Liga season. And obviously um, the departure of Leo Messi to Paris Saint-Germain. Lots of rumours flying around that Koeman is on the cusp of being sacked. It is our information, having spoken to senior sources at the camp now, that probably the only thing that's keeping him in a job is the amount of money that it would cost to sack him, as well as the perceived lack of replacements uh, to come in. Now, here's the interesting part. Uh, We do understand that uh, Pep Guardiola has turned down an approach from Barcelona to return to the Camp Nou uh, and take charge for a second spell uh, and has informed his employers at Manchester City that he was offered the job but has, and also that he turned it down and that he will see out his contract at the Etihad Stadium. Although, um, of course, that lasts for this season and the following one. Um, and so may, maybe, just maybe, um, he would be tempted at the end of this season. However, um it is the case that he wants to manage a national team and therefore going back to Barcelona and taking on that pressure and also the shambles that the club finds itself in would be unlikely uh, given Guardiola's uh, almost OCD-like personality where he likes to be in control of everything. And Barcelona is currently a club where it looks like no one's in control of anything. Um, some people are in control of small things, but there's certainly no one overseeing uh, the general policy which will guide the club forward. Who, Duncan, can sort this out? Because it seems to me that uh, this is a club which has been in decline now uh, for a couple of years and they have mismanaged finances on a catastrophic level and now they are paying the price for outrageous spending in the aftermath of Neymar's departure to PSG and also um, changing managers and uh, now they've got players who are unhappy because they're taking huge pay cuts and an ageing squad in many departments Uh, in terms of uh, the playing side and the sporting side of the club. It just doesn't look good for them. 
I think Kuman is right to about some of the things he said in the statement, um, and Mickey starts off by saying by saying that the club's in a process of rebuilding. The financial situation of the club is connected to the sporting activities, and vice versa. This means that we, as a team, have to rebuild the football team without without. Surely being, the club's in the process of disintegrating rather than rebuilding. <laughs> well, I think if he said that, it, he probably would be inviting his. Uh, is uh, immediate dismissal, but he says it's we're trying to rebuild the football team without being able to make any big financial investments. They've had their greatest player ever um, uh, removed from them because of what well, they blame La Liga for for not allowing them to uh, to issue a new contract to Lionel Messi. But um, there are other arguments that they were happy to let him go because they realised the cost was so substantial that they, they needed to divert that money elsewhere and they had to take the pain. And real, Realistically, Koeman would not be in charge if he were not, uh, if it wasn't for those financial difficulties. He's being retained as a fall guy. Um, it was cheaper to keep him in place and a handy excuse can be made and a handy, handy sacrificial lamb is available should results continue to be poor. Now, their position in La Liga looks worse than it actually is, given that they've only played four games and um, Atletico at the top have played six. They're still unbeaten in La Liga, but they've only won two matches. Their Champions League performance against Bayern Munich was terrible. I think the biggest problem is that Koeman is, has moved away from the type of football that Barcelona pride themselves on. Um, good article by um, our friend Graham Hunter, uh, today um, talking about how it's very hard to change to playing a more pragmatic style with players who are small and technical and who tasted their success by by applying a game that was about controlling the ball and making the opponents run and charging in to get in a coordinated way to get the ball back off their opponents as quickly as possible. And uh, and that was the advantage that Barcelona built for themselves, and they've they've allowed that to slip away, not just with Koeman, but with previous coaches, as well. Um, so you can take from all of that that he's in a, in a dangerous position. Um, one thing protecting him is that it will cost them money to to dismiss him, and I think the other thing protecting him is. What you see from Pep Guardiola's response when he sounded out about going back there, he's not interested in coming back under these conditions because he knows um, that if he doesn't know it's the impossible job, he certainly knows it's a very, very difficult job and very different conditions from the ones that he was a success at Barcelona with, very different conditions from the ones he's experienced at Bayern Munich, Manchester City. Um, he would have to have a huge amount of love for Barcelona that, that kind of overrode everything else if he was prepared to step into to those shoes um, and take the flak for, I think, what probably is destined to be an unsuccessful season because they just don't have the playing resources to, to compete at the very top level of the game at the moment. The other figure that's mentioned repeatedly is Xavi. There have been attempts by various um, presidential candidates and presidents and past presidents to bring him back because 
of the fan supporter buy-in to his name and the idea that he would reinstate those principles and he would get Barcelona playing that football again. Xavi has made it clear that he is interested in coaching Barcelona at some point, but he's played a, a very careful game in that if he is to come back, he wants to have absolute power, not just over the first team, but over the academy, over the whole football structure of the club, because he wants to make the conditions as good as possible for him to succeed. And you know his experience is limited. We're talking about a guy who, who has only coached in Qatar and only coached in Qatar with the, the strongest resources of any of the clubs there. And in, and in his first season as a coach in Qatar, managed to lose the title from a club who uh, regularly won the title previously. So the, I think that there'd be a risk involved in, in taking Xavi back for Barcelona and also for Xavi himself. Um, and and that, I think, also helps Koeman because if it was a simple case of John Laporta being able to say, I've had enough of this Dutchman, I don't like what he's saying, I don't like the football he's playing, I don't like what happened against Bayern Munich, I dismiss him and I put whatever money is required to bring my choice of coach, whether that be Guardiola or Xavi, back he would do it, but he simply doesn't have that resource at the moment. He doesn't. It's very hard for him to persuade these high-level coaches that it's the right time to come to the club because they know he doesn't have the money to spend on players to provide them with the opportunity to win. And and that's why you have individuals like Roberto Martinez being talked about as um, a potential candidate because one, his contract with Belgium makes him relatively cheap. And uh, and two, he's the kind of individual who, a bit like Kuman, could be persuaded to take the job when the conditions are poor because it is the opportunity to coach and lead Barcelona. And, um, and coaches of, of that stature don't usually get the opportunity to be put in charge of, of Barcelona. I think I can hear Big Sam firing up the Granada. Or the Barcelona, <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> I'm sure Tim Sherwood certainly put himself in for the job as well. Um, whether or not those two are the answer, I'm not particularly sure. Uh, this being the first podcast uh, on the transfer window of the week, we will wind things up with the hero and villain section. I'm going to hand it over to Duncan to give us his villain of the week. And I think his villain is not going to be an individual, but entire, I was going to say uh, mafia, but maybe I shouldn't. An entire organization. Um, yeah. Organized crime. <laughs> You're making it worse. Um, <laughs> Look, let's give it to Gianni Infantino because he's in charge of FIFA. Um, so we can have an individual and you don't have to talk about Mafia. Um, why? Because FIFA are pushing this biennial World Cup and in their latest uh, attempt to persuade uh, the world of football that a World Cup every two years is a better idea than the World Cup every four years, they issued a FIFA World Cup survey of um, 15,008 supporters asking them how often um, they would like to see a World Cup. 
The headline to the report was the majority of fans favour more frequent men's FIFA World Cups, which is technically correct. But let's look at the detail of the answers. They were not asked if they would, if they would like a less frequent World Cup. Their options were you can have a World Cup every year, every two years, every three years, or every four years, the status quo. The one that got the highest number of votes was every four years, 45%. But by adding together the um, every year, 11%, every two years, 30%, every three years, 14%, FIFA decided that their poll was a resounding vote in favour of their proposal that we have a, a World Cup every two years, even though the every two years option got two thirds of the vote of the every four years option. Um, classic FIFA, classic Gianni Infantino. Well, as I've said before, having been in the presence of Gianni Infantino in uh, UEFA headquarters when he was deputy to Michel Platini, um, I find him hawkish and scheming. So uh, I'm not surprised at the way he's handled this. Well, Duncan, my villain would have, may have been Pep Guardiola for slagging off Manchester City fans for not turning up for a Champions League match and then inviting the wrath of his own supporters and then feeling to apologise. But as I am now the man who's deciding on the hero of the last few days, um, somewhat uh, contradictory, I'm going to nominate Dermot Gallagher, former Premier League referee, who has a very regular spot uh, on television uh, where he gives his opinion on the controversial decisions of a weekend's fixture list. And this weekend, amazingly kept a straight face in defending a referee's decision uh, in last weekend's match between Manchester City and Southampton, when Kyle Walker absolutely clearly cleans out Southampton's Adam Armstrong when he's in on goal. And Gallagher defended with a straight face, I have to stress, a straight face, saying that it was the right decision on the basis that Walker had managed to get himself ahead of Armstrong and therefore the referee's interpretation that Armstrong had run into uh, Walker's leg was therefore the correct decision when actually Walker's leg was wrapped around Armstrong's two legs in taking him out and preventing a goal-scoring opportunity. So Dermot Gallagher, you've featured many times on the Transfer Window podcast in terms of uh, your uh, interpretation and defence of referees, but this one really does does outdo them all. Uh, and you have taken much ridicule in the football community and amongst pundits for the fact that you did claim that this was a legal challenge and not a penalty. So That's remarkable one that from Gallagher, given it was a VAR intervention um, after a penalty had been given and a red card uh, for preventing a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, and on the same weekend when VAR had failed to intervene 
uh, when Manchester United should have had at least two penalties uh, in their game against West Ham United. And, and we were told um, by people like Dermot Gallagher that didn't intervene because there's a, a high bar set for these interventions this season. And um, Gallagher often likes to say that the, the referee on the field has the best view of these events, except, of course, when VAR overrules um, on ridiculous well, decisions. Why do we have VAR if that's the case? The referee's got the best view. Why do we even bother having VAR? Look, the, they cannot come up with a consistent system of, of implementing VAR, no matter how hard hard they, they try to do so. Um, a lot of people have praised them for being less interventionist this season and setting that high bar. Yet, um, when you have a... Look, it's a clear foul by Walker. Walker doesn't complain afterwards for obvious reasons because he knows he hasn't got the ball he knows he's come in from the side and and wrapped his his legs around Armstrong um, the idea that that Gallagher was pre- presenting that as a defender as long as you get your body ahead of an opponent first and he hits you it's not going to be a penalty anymore I mean if if that actually becomes the implementation of the rules in the Premier League we're in for a, a very very strange season of football and a lot of injuries very true. So um, before we uh, end the podcast, uh, I'm going to ask you all to begin a petition to have Duncan Castles installed as head of refereeing uh, at the PGMOL, because clearly you would do a much better job than what's being done at the moment. I'm not sure he'd accept that rule, but it's worth a try. Please uh, engage with us on our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Transfer Podcast. Find us on YouTube as well. Just do the search. uh, And also uh, you can find the embedded link in our tweets. Duncan is on at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. You know, we love to be in touch with you guys so anything you want to ask us or discuss with us please just get in touch and until then stay safe be well and thanks for listening